Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 9-21-2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service this evening. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time we have this evening. Thank you for uh, all those who have uh, joined in and participated in our study. We pray for wisdom as we approach your word, our focus, and we pray that we will have uh, not only the insight, but the understanding to be able to put all of the pieces that you have given us together so that we can come to know you better. Father, we want to continue to pray for Misty and also for the loss of life. Uh, the young man we were praying for, we understand he did pass. And so, Father, we pray for the family right now and all those um, who are grieving at this very moment. So we also pray for the others that are sick among us. Father, you know their names in particular. So we're lifting them, them up in prayer and the struggles and troubles that they're going through, asking that you comfort them and, and give them the encouragement to know that you do understand and you do see what they are doing. So thank you, Father, for the words that are before us. We pray we will be able to understand them and apply them to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So we are studying, as you know, in Romans chapter 11. We happen to be in verse 21, interestingly. We're in verse 21. It is the 21st as well of September. And we are digging in here. You should have notes. So I'm going to get right to it if that, for the sake of time. We always seem to be struggling at the end. So let's see if we get right to it. So Romans 11:21, short verse. It says this. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Short phrase, but I think there's a lot in it. As we discovered in the text, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's Romans 11.11. Why would Israel be envious? After all, they rejected uh, Jesus as their Messiah. It is because the honor and distinction of our call to the ministry belonged to to them. This was their responsibility, and they did not accept the obligation given to them. Not only that, but it was also clear that God is now working through the church. However, God has not abandoned those Jews individually. It was, quote, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them, unquote. That's Romans eleven fourteen. Just as Israel failed and proved unfaithful to their call, we would expect God to judge them. Now, what do you think God will do if the church does not properly handle their responsibility before God? And uh, just as a thought, we're just kind of keeping the, the tenor of what God is trying to tell us. 
these verses that are before us are sort of admonition, warning us not to become arrogant as they did. Okay, so the baton has been passed to us, the church, at this point. We know we're going to give it back to Israel. So let's not be arrogant. Not, do not walk in the same footsteps as Israel did. It's important that we see the plan of God so that we can act according to it. We, can, we don't get ahead of ourselves. So we have a lot of history and, but we also know what God did in, with reference to judgment, how he severely judged Israel. So we're just going to get right to these couple verses. There are a lot of points to make in there. So here it is. <clears throat> For if God did not spare the natural branches. So the first point is, for if, meaning this is true, God did not spare the natural branches. It could easily be translated since God did not spare the natural branches. Now, I just want to point out natural branches. Natural branches, well, those that's Israel. And he did not even spare them. He, they were the ones who were originally called for this purpose, national Israel. And God disciplined them. He did. And we already said, and if you read in Isaiah chapter 28, we find that language that he would perform his strange act. And we said, what is that? What is a strange act? And that is where God, who generally fights for his people, has to now turn in judgment to those same people. That's strange. And sure enough, God does it when it needs to be done. So we can certainly understand that. God didn't spare natural branches. Be careful. He will not spare you either. You don't think you're going to have some sort of exception before God when it comes to this. Just know, God's going to deal with us just like he dealt with Israel. That was uh, the question that I left hanging last week, and it was point K of uh, notes last week. Will God act in the church as he did with Israel? And the answer was yes. And I read several verses from the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, where he was dealing with the seven churches. There was a common theme for all of those churches that was reward and judgment. You know, I know your works. I know what you're doing, said to each church. And then he said, uh, I have a few things against you. He told them good things about him. He told them some of the things that he didn't like. And he gave them opportunity. Repent. And, um, or else there could be some judgment headed your way. Now, he's just keep in mind, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to Israel. He's talking to local churches in various locales. He dealt with churches in just this manner. So we just have to be careful not to become arrogant like they did. Because what can happen to us? Well, the same type of judgment. Remember, they're the natural branches. They belong to Israel. This, this is their identity. We're assuming a role that is really foreign to us. That's why it talks about 
it's a, if we're grafted in and we're not the natural branches, don't think that that's somehow demeaning for Paul to say such things about us. You who are not uh, broke from a wild, uh, you know, are grafted into, then people think, yeah, see, Israel is what everything. No, Israel is not um, the glorious thing. Right? What is, is that God is giving us opportunity here. We're not Israel. It is not our goal to be Israel. We are the church, and we need to understand what God has called us to. Now, this responsibility, yes, <laughs> this was Israel's responsibility. They were the natural branches, and he did not spare them. Point B, God certainly judged Israel when they needed it. Just like disciplining a wayward child, we are not helping them if we don't check their behavior. Now, it's important, and I have a, a verse here, or actually it's a whole chapter, it's Leviticus chapter 26. Why do I give you this chapter to read if you'd like to read it? And I might go and read some of it for you, but in fact, I'll just begin to turn to it here as we're talking about it. But Leviticus 26 deals with judgment. God laid it out. He said, look, if you do this, uh, this will be the result. If you don't, this will be the result. He wasn't playing with Israel. They had a calling, and he had expectations. They were stewards, and they were responsible to prove themselves faithful to God. So God checked him when he needed to. He told him, I'm going to check you, and I need to check you. Now, just think about a discipline, the discipline for a wayward child. You're, if you refuse, if you withhold discipline from your children... You are not helping them. You are not helping their, their behavior. Uh, so I'm just going to jump into Leviticus 26, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject any decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring you to sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all of this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for the sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me. 
I will myself, I myself will be hostile toward you and afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdrew into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into the enemy's hands. So there's more, much more. And if you get a chance sometimes and you want to just do some reading, this is probably not pleasant reading, go to the Psalms or something if you want pleasant reading. But if you just want to read and understand the judgment of God and what God is capable of when we violate the trust given to us. He talks about, there were some tough things that he mentioned in Revelation as well. Uh, obviously, Israel is an agricultural uh, economy, and uh, for sure, a lot of the things that happened to them were disastrous. If, if he said, well, you know, the ground, well, we go to the grocery store, so we don't have to plant and have animals and so forth. All that, that's Israel's economy. But for us, he would discipline us in a way that would get our attention as well. And you saw that in the seven churches. So God does know how to deal with the nation, the wayward nation. And he does know how to deal with us. Point C, God takes no pleasure in disciplining. It is not. It is a necessary function of his justice, protecting his righteousness. Now, we always look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 12, and I want to turn there. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 12. This is a more modern way of understanding God's discipline and how he handles it. <clears throat> so verse 5, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. Notice, it is a word of encouragement. I just want to make sure we see that word because what you're going to read here doesn't sound like encouragement, but it is. He says, uh, uh, he's, he's addressing like a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. So notice, that is, when we see this, we should understand this is a normal course of action. So there's one thing I think about a lot of times. You could ask the question, why do you think we need discipline? Why can't we just, God, you tell me what to do, I'll do it, no worries. I'm good, I'll do what you say. But, but God's saying, we need discipline. And he that's part of the encouragement. It's part of the growth process of him training you as a son. You need discipline. Often, we think too highly of ourselves. And when that happens, we're not easily able to be corrected by God because we may have some arrogance or we just think it's too much of of who we are, as though we don't really need any, any, we don't have any issues that God has to deal with. 12, Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. 
But what children? What children are not disciplined by their father? In other words, don't think you're going to escape it. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So we, we should expect, and I know Jesus even said it too. He said, Father, he, well, he was telling us, the church, that in this world we will have trouble. He said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Moreover, verse 9, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. It's probably after we learned a little bit, <laughs> and we grew up a little bit, and we understood, because a lot of times it wasn't happening when it happened. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, we should have this knowledge. They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. Now, i got to read this next one. No discipline seems uh, pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained. Notice what discipline does. Trained. So there's different kinds of discipline. You can't always think in terms of punitive discipline. Like you did something wrong and God's got to correct that. You know, because this is, then we would only be disciplined according to the things that we think we're doing wrong. God God sees the whole picture of who we are, and he knows exactly what we need in order to grow us up, in order that we may be trained by it. So there is punitive discipline, which we saw about Israel, but then there's also discipline that has to do with our spiritual growth and training. Okay, so it makes much sense for us to not flinch, not draw back, when it comes to discipline, God is going to deal with us, and he's dealing with us as sons. He's teaching us patience. He's teaching us how to wait on him, how to understand his dealings in our lives. So discipline is not foreign to us. Point D in our notes. The natural branches. And we, we discussed this earlier. Those descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, Israel. They were called and this was the responsibility given them in the world, in this world. That it is their response. God created them for this purpose. Wasn't only this purpose that he created them for, but this was a major focus of God. Now, of course, Christ came through Israel. I mean, he was from the tribe of Judah. And he, you could say Israel birthed him into this world. He came through Israel. But, so this responsibility, though, that we're talking about is where they were supposed to be God's priest nation to the world. It's just like what he told Abraham. Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And how could that possibly be? What would Abraham, he's talking about how through the nation Israel, Christ will come. And it would be certainly appropriate for Israel to teach the gospel. Whether Christ had come or was coming, 
it was perfect opportunity. God says, not only is Christ going to come through Israel, but I'm giving Israel the opportunity to go out and be my witnesses in the world. And of course, Israel failed in that regard. Point E, in the tribulation, right? And this is what's going to happen. I give this so that we know Israel will succeed. We can talk about their failures, but since we have the rest of the story, we got to make sure we understand it in the context that yes, yes, Israel failed, but they will succeed. And this is what it says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. <laughs> That's Israel's job. As a testimony to all nations. Notice that in this verse is the definition of Israel's calling. There you have it. What they were supposed to be doing in their day. They were supposed to be preaching the gospel. And yet, they rejected grace. And they tried to say, you had to have the law, and you had to keep the law, and that your, <coughs> excuse me, your adherence to the law was uh, your justification before God. So, notice, Israel will be firing on all cylinders in the tribulation. Just know that. They have not failed. And if there's hope for Israel, and you just read some of the horrible things that God judged them with, there's definitely hope for us. Are we stubborn? Yes. Are we arrogant? Yes, we are. But let's just put that in perspective. And while we're here and now, let's turn that around so that we don't uh, disappoint, that we fulfill our obligations that God has placed upon us. Point F, the church, or also known as Gentiles, are not the natural branches, which is why they were grafted in. It is not the role of the church, but Israel, to do this work in the world. So we've made that point where God did not spare the natural branches. Well, we, as a, a nation, are not. The church is not a nation in the world. So it's... There are differences. We're not under the Mosaic Law. The church is not a nation before God. I mean, we could go on and, and discuss other differences between Israel and the church. <laughs> there are many. Uh, and this part of it, this role belongs to them. And so he's telling us this so that we don't get arrogant. Point G. God wants to have witnesses in the world. Or... This just obviously it's a deduction to think about it, that God wants to have witnesses in this world, or boots on the ground, as I might say. We must be reminded that this is not the only way God can reach the masses. So why do I give John 16, 8 through 11? Let's look at it. Because it's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 through 11 says, when he comes, that's he is God, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, as you look at it in the previous verse. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, just note, when he comes, well, the Holy Spirit is coming in a completely new ministry. 
and he's, he's coming at Pentecost. But, but remember, he had already been here. So it's not like he'd never been in the world, but he's now taking a prominent role in the world. And um, he's, when he comes, he has new information. So not only does he have the information of who the Christ is, but you know, that information is all about Christ and the work that he did on our behalf. Israel had all that information, except they didn't have the identity of the person of Christ. So if you just say, well, I believe in the Messiah, to, I know he's coming, I'm putting my trust in him, that's salvation in the Old Testament. But now, in the New Testament, you can't say, oh, I believe in the Messiah to come, and, and I'm putting my faith in him. That won't fly in the New Testament. It is Jesus Christ He's the one who came, suffered, and died for your sins. He's the one that God is satisfied with his work on your behalf. So you can't say, yeah, well, if there's a Messiah, I believe in him. No, no, that's not going to fly anymore. Got to now. So, so that's what I mean. The Holy Spirit has different work to do. He has more information about the gospel. And so now that the gospel is clear, it wasn't that it wasn't clear in the Old Testament, it's just that now we know who the Messiah is, then that has to be preached. It's all about Jesus Christ and believing in him. Believing in him, you will have eternal life. You reject him, you will not see life. The wrath of God remains on you. So it is important <clears throat> we think about that. Uh, eight, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe what? In me. So the sin that people uh, are in danger of is the sin of refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. In other words, that's it. The standard of righteousness that Jesus set in this world is done. And he's already gone and ascended to the Father, which is to say his, he's been approved by the Father. His level of righteousness is sufficient for all mankind. And that is what is imputed to each person. When Abraham believed in, in, in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, he, what, what righteousness was credited to Abraham? It was the righteousness of Christ. That righteousness we just read about right there. That he just said about righteousness, verse 10. Because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. You can't see me any longer because it's over. It's all, I'm done. He's the glorified Christ, and his righteousness is the very righteousness that we stand on for salvation. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So, that, so it's over, right? Satan's challenges, he was defeated at the cross. There's no appeals that he will have. It's over. And, and this is, the judgment is sure. If you side with Satan, you will also suffer the end that he has. And that is the lake of fire. Rejecting Christ 
is what will send you to the lake of fire. And that is the same fate that Satan has. You will not get out of judgment if you reject Jesus Christ. You, you will not escape judgment. And Satan, who is the adversary of God, will, he will not escape judgment either. It is sure. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is the reason why people are not saved. It's because they have not believed on the name of the one and only Son of God. It's because of that. So, that is, um, that was point G we just read. God wants to have a witness in this world. So, th that witness, even the, let's, this point, this point here, even though God wants boots on the ground, even though that's so, God the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes to every person that would ever live on this earth. God the Holy Spirit's job is to bring people to the knowledge of Christ. And I would, listen, I would hope, well, I don't even say, have to say I would hope, but I'm just saying if we, if, if God did something so great as judging the sins of the world. I mean, every sin of every person that would ever be born on planet Earth was judged in the person of Christ to the point where God the Father is satisfied with that work on our behalf. Sin is not the issue. That's big. That's a big deal. He did all that before we were even born, all of us. So, and then, on the other hand, we just read about righteousness, how it's important in this regard, for our standing with God. Our standing's not good enough to be to live with God. We don't have a righteousness that is sufficient to live with God. So God provides that through the person of Christ. That righteousness is going to everyone who believes. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, says Romans 3. So it is imperative that we understand this. But guess who else is doing this? It's God the Holy Spirit is making this information available to the hearts of all unbelievers. It is not just dependent on the boots on the ground. We should know that, right? Boy, if God, if God did those great things like we just talked about, the sins being paid for and the righteousness being offered for free, if he did all that and then... He doesn't have a sufficient communication system in place in order to let people know this happened. Wow, that is horrible to think about. That would be deficient on God's part that he did all those fantastic things, but then people don't know about it. And people can say, well, I never heard about it, God. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. No. They will have no excuse when it's over. When they stand before the great white throne judgment at, at the end of human history, they will have no excuse. Not only does God have boots on the ground, but he also has a communication system that can reach the heart of every person that would ever be born on planet Earth. That is, if he can reason with them, he will reason with them. So it does not depend on us. Imagine that. If it does, 
the net is a faulty communication system. If we are the communication system and we fail and we're our, we could be arrogant, we could we, look at Israel. We could fail in our job, but guess who will, who, who will not fail? That is God, the Holy Spirit. So we'll keep going. All right, so if he did not spare the natural branches, and this next phrase, he will not spare you either. Point A. If God gave Israel discipline for their unfaithful response to their call, certainly we will not escape discipline for our, for our following in their footsteps. And that's 1 Corinthians 4.2. Um, we just want to kind of look at that quickly. 1 Corinthians 4.2. We already said this is... Um, it says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Right? And it, Paul is talking about ministers here, if you look at the context. But really, this could be, by application, our responsibility as ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. That's a trust God has given us. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's a trust God has given us. So what does it say about that? Uh, we must prove faithful. Now, of course, uh, our faithfulness is not going to be judged by me. I'm not going to look at you and say, oh, you're not doing good. You need to do this. You need... It's God who will judge us, and that's later at the judgment seat of Christ. And so I don't judge you. I, I mean, you could be doing a fantastic job, and I'm not making judgments, but I am here to help you understand you know, ways that we can you know, fulfill our obligations to God. But I am not going to sit up in a place of judgment over you. So that's point A, just to know it requires a trust. What, what does it mean that we must prove faithful? What, what does it mean that we must prove faithful? That means faithfulness. We must prove faithfulness. So uh, that's important. We need faith for salvation, but we need faithfulness, which is different, to... Uh, answer our call properly. Point C. Note, God will not spare the Gentiles either. As, remi as a reminder, we, will, uh, we have the record. And I say as a reminder, and I give all the Revelation passages, which I'm not going to go over all of them again, but we gave them uh, last week. We got an opportunity to see where God does deal with the churches. And he will not spare the Gentiles either. I don't see it as God will give the Gentiles a pass. When he says the Gentiles, he's referring to the church. So keep in mind, if you read those Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you'll see for yourself. I just pointed out a few key verses to help you understand the judgment. There's also a reward, which I did not point out because it's not necessarily our subject right now. Point D, there can be 
individual judgment as well as collective. So in Revelation, we're seeing collective judgment. So if you look at the beginning of the communication to each church, now to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, to the angel of the church at Laodicea. Well, who's the angel? He's the messenger, the minister, and that would be the pastor. Right? Write these things, and he's telling them what to write to that church. And it, it's important because the message is a collective message. I'm in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to chapter 11. And we're just going to look at these verses 29 through 32. So collective judgment, the church, God, if a church has gone so far astray, God will judge that whole church. He will see them as an, as an individual entity and he will judge them. But there are also individuals who are not necessarily, they can be judged, but not so much the church, but the individual believers can be judged. So that's important to note. Uh, you know, this is a key verse, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 32. Let's read it. Obviously, it's in the context of communion, where they were, uh, you know, having the bread and the wine to come together to commemorate the Lord's death until he comes. <clears throat> but there were some who would just come, and recklessly come and uh, eat up all the food, drink up all the wine. You know, it was just terrible. It wasn't even, it was supposed to, it wasn't even for that purpose that you, you know, satisfy your hunger or thirst. It was for the purpose of remembering Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf. So God disciplined those who did this, who were in the habit of doing this. And uh, so just to note, this is what it says, verse 29. Well, first, verse 28, why don't we read that? Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread, eat of the bread and drink of the cup, right? Because this is a sacred... Um, ritual that God has given us to commemorate the work of Christ on our behalf. So, so then people were showing up and recklessly doing what they wanted to do. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. What does that mean? That means that they don't have the understanding of the ritual in their mind, right? When you eat the bread and you drink of the cup, then you're doing so with the thought that you are remembering the work of Christ on our behalf, how his sins, he would judge for our sins in his own body, right? This, the humanity of Christ was sacrificed for us. So they, they're not discerning the body of Christ, and they eat and drink judgment on themselves. So... Again, what is this judgment? God's going to explain it. I don't have to because he's going to explain it. But notice, the judgment comes from God, and God will judge those people who uh, act in this manner. Verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What is that all about? They're weak, sick, and falling asleep here is death. 
So there are, seems to be levels. We already know it's, they're drinking judgment. This is the judgment that could possibly fall on them. They could be weak, they could be sick, and they could be judged with death. God could take them out of this world. Now, uh, 31, it gives some good definition here. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, in other words, if we paid attention to it, right? This is a sacred ritual, right? God is saying, don't enter into this frivolously or recklessly. If we were more um, prudent in our the way we handled ourselves, what well, we would not come under such judgment. So we don't we wouldn't have to worry about that, right? That's not something we should be fearing, uh, but we should be aware that judgment could come on us for this purpose. Then verse thirty-two. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way. Okay, so we may be judged in this way by the Lord. Notice, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. I'm hoping that's resonating with us, to understand that God is not throwing these people away. That because they came under this judgment, even if it's sleep, some have fallen asleep, even if it's that, we know that the person is not going to be condemned with the world. That's not going to be their end. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And what's happening to these people? They're being disciplined. They're believers, and they're being disciplined. That's what it is. That's what judgment is. Discipline. So, we, if you get that, right? Because a lot of people don't see this verse. So when we're talking about grace and salvation by grace, you know, they think, well, if you don't do God's will, you, you won't be saved. That'll be the discipline. God will take you out of salvation. That is not the case. This verse says, no, don't, don't see it. It's God deals with his people. We already read in Hebrews that he disciplines every son. It may be punitive discipline. It may be training discipline, but don't think that he won't discipline you. That's part of how he trains us. Part of what, if we need to be checked in certain areas of our, uh, our stubbornness, our arrogance, he will. So don't say, oh, I'm, I've lost my salvation. That's impossible. You can't lose your salvation. We have the righteousness of Christ. That is our standing when it comes to salvation. Do we earn our this righteousness? Absolutely not. It was earned by Christ and imputed to us freely, just like we read in Romans chapter 3. So it's important that we see these verses because it helps us understand what are the limitations, right? Well, will God, if he's mad at us, will he somehow discipline us to the point where could, because he's mad we did something? No. Christ paid for every sin that you could ever commit in this life. There is no sin that he doesn't know about already. He already knows about it. And he's already judged, imputed that sin to Christ on the cross and judged that sin. And that was even before you were born. Okay. Just wanted to make sure, because these are important thoughts. Right? I don't want, I mean, you're, you're going to need these verses when you talk to people, because they somehow think that um, 
if we fall out of line with God in some way, and I'm not trying to condone any particular behavior, but what I'm trying to show is the limits of what salvation is. God, the limits we're working with is God. And one way we said it in another uh, session was, God has no standards when it comes to salvation. It is not of our works, not of ourselves, it's a free gift, no standards. But when it comes to our call, God does have expectations for us. He expects that we allow God the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in all truth. He expects us to operate under the gifts that we have given him, or that he has given us rather, that we have given him. He has given these gifts to us and he expects that we function according to them. Let's keep going in our notes. We're almost, uh, we're making some good ground here. Okay, so point E, God has expectations for the church and we should not be surprised that discipline is needed and used for our good as we have read in Hebrews 12. So we're not going to go back to Hebrews 12, but we read it. A good, we understand. We shouldn't be surprised that somehow discipline is needed. That's how he works. That's how every parent works. And you're going to probably say, well, I know a parent. He wasn't good. No. But generally speaking, the metaphor can't stand on all four feet. Right? But you should understand his point to make, right? Don't see discipline as something uh, that's awry or that God is being very harsh with us. That's how he trains us. Point F, another way to say this, right? And that's so uh, another way, John 15 is the vine and the branches, right? And it's about bearing fruit. And we should already know from the setup here that salvation is not in question, although people will somehow relate these verses to salvation. This is what it says. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Sounds like harsh language, but it's really to say that God will deal with us. Right? If you if you get to the place where you are not abiding in Christ, right, you cannot bear fruit. God does have expectations for your life. He does. Is it wrong for him? Should he just say, well, you know, I'm just going to let you be saved and that's the end of it. Your salvation is free. It is free. But does he have the right to have some expectations that you grow up in him and that you, that you grow in grace and all of those fantastic things that are ahead of us, rewards, and all the things that God says, I will reward every man for whatever work he has done. God is clear, and he does have expectations. Point G, remember this, uh, he will not spare you either. The phrase does not refer to salvation. <laughs> now, when we read that second phrase, he will not spare you either. I'm hoping at least we don't have people who would question that. That, oh, is this salvation? No, I shouldn't say that. Because if you do have the question, we need to answer it. But really, these, this is not referred to salvation. After all the context that we read, we understand that it's a discipline. 
right? And that God is treating us as sons and he will not condemn us with the world. And therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That cannot be um, reversed. If that were reversed, there would be condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But here, here, this verse is unequivocally telling us, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Point H, there can and will be discipline for those in Christ, and that is the new creation. That's us. But there's no condemnation. Do you see the the differences between, between those two, two statements. On the one hand, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, yeah, there is discipline so that we will not be condemned with the world. For And that is for those in Christ, the new creation. I'm hoping you see the dichotomy of that. Same way we tried to say it. For salvation, there are no expectations of God. Come as you are. And he saves to the uttermost those who come to Christ, come to him by Christ. There is no expectation. But when it comes to our call, yeah, there's the scriptures are replete with verse after verse about what God expects of us, how we should behave, uh, how we grow in Christ, how we grow to the fullness and stature. What is our call? Why did God call God call us in the first place? All of that is expectation for the Father and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Last point, and we're going to have hopefully some opportunity for some Q&A. Point I, if you are confident in your own salvation, how confident are you in ministering the way of salvation to those who are in need? And I think we read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. I'm just going to read that again. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Just to see, show you something here. Paul says, Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, what is he's made himself a slave? What does that mean? It means he is serving everyone so that he could win as many as possible. He says, I don't, I'm not an actual slave, but this is my choice to make myself a slave. I'm a free man, but I'm serving everyone else with regard to the gospel because I want to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews, to those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. In other words, he, to the Jew, he became like a Jew. He, he knows what it is to be a Jew. So he did that so that he could, you know, broach the conversation with these people. If he were an outsider, he might not have an opportunity to have a conversation. I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Right? So that, but he, he's just pointing out he's not under the law. And then verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under the law of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I, there's rules in Christ, right? I 
Christ is Lord. It's not just, well, whatever, whatever. And you know, people, younger people are saying in this, this time, you know, what's going on? Whatever. You know, no, Paul's saying, I am under the law of Christ. So, as, so what's the goal in all of this, Paul? So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, I say all this, I, I read all this, but notice how versatile Paul is. Notice, it doesn't matter who walks up to Paul. Paul takes a look, he sizes him up, and he says, I, I'm going to have the right approach to this person. You got, you're a Jew? Okay. You're a Gentile? Okay. You, you, you're somebody who's a stickler for the law? Okay. I got you. I understand that. I got to, I know how I, so how versatile are you when it comes to witnessing the gospel? You probably, what I'm saying is you probably need to know the gospel 10 different ways. I mean, first of all, you got to understand the gospel. So, so the way you understand it is going to be the catalyst for how you present it, right? Understand, if you understand it inside out, right, then you're going to know how to give the gospel to the person standing in front of you. But notice, before he was able to do all this, he said it. He said, I'm a slave to everyone. This is the way he handled it. He saw himself as serving them. He knew what they needed. And he saw himself as serving them. And in Romans uh, chapter 1, he says, I am, I am under obligation to Jews and Greeks. And, you know, his point of view as he approached people was he is serving them. So I know you're confident in your own salvation. I know you are. I know if someone asks you, are you saved? Absolutely, I'm saved. Well, what if, can you be lost? Well, no. After, and you probably got good scriptures to tell them why. We even talked about some of them tonight. What are the limits of salvation? So take, if you, if you have that confidence in your own salvation, turn that to your call, right? And minister to people who are in need. Whoever standing before you, figure out a way. Just like Paul was like, I'm, 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 I owe them this. God put me in the place to know this. Now, before we open the questions up, we're going to do that in a second. But I want to go to Ephesians chapter 3. This is one point to make here. So it says, this is Ephesians 3. Um, I think we made the point already before, but just to note, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts, or here it is, it's verse 18, that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, you know, these are some deep verses. He's not talking about salvation here talking about the plan of the Father, the eternal purpose of the Father, which he said earlier in verse 11, according to his eternal purpose, 
that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, but notice how the Holy Spirit, how well the Holy Spirit can get us to the point where Christ is in our hearts and we are rooted and established in love. Notice the full dimensions that we know. We know the height, the depth, the width, and the length when it comes to the deeper things of God. We can know. The Holy Spirit can provide that level of information for us. Now, all I'm asking you is to know the height, the depth, the width, and the length of your salvation. Look, you already have it. You've already believed in Christ. This is about what you've done. So, but learning those dimensions when it comes to your salvation is just as valuable, just as needed as learning the deep things of God. Now, what will happen? What will be the result of you being able to know salvation, the ins, the outs, the ups, the downs? Is that you'll be able to be a confident witness to those who are in your sphere of influence. So this is important for you. While these verses are not talking about salvation, but notice, if they're talking about the deep things of God, the Holy Spirit has given us that. He's given us the ability to be able to know the eternal purpose of the Father. He's certainly given us the ability to know the gospel, inside out, upside down. So make, make your calling sure. So that when you go out and talk to people, you're confident in these things. All right, we're going to stop at this point and open the floor for some Q&A. We have opportunity to, to dig in a little bit. I'm going to say the floor is open. This is they I have the two questions. I'm still driving. Um, the moment of the once the church is resurrected and the rapture happens and dealing with the great tribulations. Um, I remember you spoke about Abraham has of same righteousness as salvation as as the church has. Yeah. Um, but the only thing is missing from them is the baptism of the spirit, right? Oh, well, they have the same... So they don't have... Go ahead, Dave. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So let Dan, I, I, was ask, I, was, I was asking them, um, they don't have the same thing as they have for the disease. And they don't have... I mean, I'm asking, they don't have the baptism of the Spirit. The second question is, will the Mosaic Law be into effect also after the rapture, you know, when the situation uh, happens? Yes. But it will be a modified <clears throat> version of the Mosaic Law because, remember, they will be under the New Covenant. Right? This is just like when we get to Romans 11, 25, and 26, where he says, um, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, even though he, the New Covenant, Christ already died, the Jews don't believe it. Right? So right so as far as they're concerned, they're still under the old covenant, right? If you talk to a Jew who doesn't believe in Christ today, the reason why he doesn't believe in Christ 
It's because he's still looking for Christ to come. Well, Christ has already come. And he's already paid for the sins of the world. So as a nation, Israel will accept Jesus Christ. Now, they will accept him under new covenant principles, not under old covenant principles. That they will know that one sacrifice, this, that Christ stood up and sacrificed himself one time for sins. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. So there are major differences in the law with regard to that. So it says, uh, here it goes. Uh, let's see. Day after day, every priest. Oh, no, no. Before that, this is Hebrews 10.10. 10. Hebrews 10.10. 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by the one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the point that I'm making in all of this, and you can read it in Hebrews 10, uh, is that it is not the same relationship that these Jews would have. They will understand this. They will understand that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, and that he is, he is perfected uh, forever those who come to him through um, faith. So is that your question, or was your... What else? What, what did you say? So I have no question, but I'm saying uh, we know when Christ came, he, he fulfilled the law. And you said it will be modified also, right? Yeah, he fulfilled the law, but it doesn't mean that Israel is not going to be under the law, right? And this is exactly what it says in Revelation twelve seventeen that we read before, right? They, there's two characteristics right. about, about them, right? Those who keep God's commands and hold, that's the law, and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The law distinguishes Israel as God's priest nation. Now, a lot of the things, the animal sacrifices, all those things, right? We already just read that they don't have to continue. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. They understand all that, right? So it will be modified. And if you read the new covenant to Israel, so they'll be under the new covenant, there will be different dynamics for them under the new covenant. So, uh, so, but is it the Mosaic law? Sure, absolutely, yeah. But it is not exactly, it, like I said, it's modified. Your thoughts? Thanks for uh, answering that for me. Thank you. Sure, sure. Thank you for the question. Other thoughts out there? Yeah, I had a situation uh, with a, a person. I don't know. I want to be naive, thinking maybe I just didn't have the right scriptures for them. But, you know, we went through Adam, and they agreed that Adam was the condemnation. 
he was the one that brought condemnation to man. And he, they even agree that um, Christ condemned the whole human race in Adam. But and there was a reading, and through it all, they still said, if you continue to sin, that you will go to the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. So I just couldn't find the right scripture. So maybe you can help me with that. Well, I would, I would first want to use First John two two. Where it just clearly says that Christ. Now this is this is where the rubber hits the road. I'm just going to read it. He is the atoning sacrifice. That word is propitiation, right? He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So now, uh, if you couple that with the Second Corinthians five passage, where it talks about that God was reconciling the world to himself, in Christ, not counting their sins against them, right? So, either, the whole point is Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. So the question is, if he paid for the sins of the whole world, do you still have to pay for them? Yeah, you know, we, we, we go through that first scripture that you just quoted, and what was the thought? And I wrote down the second scripture after after I left them. That was the next one I was going to give them. The fact that he's not counting our sins against us. But when I told them that Christ died, not just for the sins of those who were going to heaven, he even died for the, for the sins of those who were going to the lake of fire. That's right. Yeah. He and paid for the sins of the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. And um, they agreed to that. Yeah, but they... If, but you can't say you agree to something, but then disagree with what it means. Okay? This is where the rubber hits the road. If you agree with the fact that Christ paid for the sins of the whole world, then he paid for the sins of the whole world. You can't say, well, yeah, yeah I agree with that. However, I'm still going to pay for my sins. You can't. That's not logical, even to say that. Either he paid for the sins of the whole world, or he did not pay for the sins of the whole world. Which one is it? Yeah, now, I get this. They 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 feel like yeah, he did pay for the sins of the whole world. But if you keep on sinning and don't, he says we sin all the time. Yeah, we sin all the time. But if you got to keep uh, repenting. You know, you got to keep asking God for forgiveness. And if you don't and you keep sinning, you're going to the lake of fire. Well, let me ask you. I would say this: uh, When did God pay for all of your sins? When did He do it? He did it on the, on, on the cross, right? So if he did it on the cross, and yeah. we, we were not even born yet, did he do it with the condition that you would repent and all this other stuff? No, he paid for him. He said it is finished. He was judged. And when we hear the gospel, it is not he might have paid for your sins if you do thus and so. The gospel is that he did pay for your sins, that he is the Savior, he was he died as a ransom for all sins. It didn't say if he might he did it. So again, it, it boils down to whether or not the person believes what it is they are quoting. They're saying yes, I believe that. Well, no, you don't. If you're telling me that you can pay for your own sins, you can tell me that God is not counting your sins against you, and yet now you are counting those very sins that Christ paid for that you say you believe. 
you're counting them against uh, people. That's not possible. <coughs> Excuse me. You can't have it both ways. That's you can't say you believe in it, and at the same time. And, and what, what, and what reminded me about it was when you brought up um, the great white throne judgment. The conversation I had with them, and I even asked them. I said, "So, so what is God going to judge at at the great white throne judgment?" And you know what they said? They said the same. Of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> well. It's okay, Bill, that, that they don't understand. That's why you're there, right? To help them understand this one point, right? This is the key point. If they think that sins can still be paid for, then they don't understand what Christ did. <coughs> Excuse me. Either you believe it and you trust in the fact that God did this because it's exactly what the scripture says, or... You stand condemned in your own sins. You can't pay for sins by repenting. No. Repenting doesn't pay for sins. No. <clears throat> That's not the payment. I left them with some homework. I said, find me the scriptures that says what you're saying. I'm sure, and, and there are some. <laughs> of course, they're going to be missed and screwed. But I just want them, maybe if they find those scriptures and bring them to me, maybe we can straighten some stuff out. Yeah, but something that keeps. I think he knows enough scriptures. What he doesn't know, is, well, he doesn't understand what he's saying, and he doesn't believe what he's saying. So those two things, right? You can't have double jeopardy. You can't have Christ paying for... If, if you have to pay for sins that Christ was supposed to have paid for, and Christ didn't do a good job. Is he prepared to say Christ didn't do a good job? Yeah. I don't think so. <clears throat> if if somebody paid a bill for you in full, do you still have to pay that bill? Is the bank still looking for you to pay that bill? Somebody else paid it for you in full. Right. Are you going to go to the bank and pay them anyway? You think you can pay them? Well, you don't. They're going to say you don't understand. Your bill is already paid. That's what they're going to say to you. Same here. You don't understand. Your bill is already paid. But you persist in trying to pay the bill. Guess what they're going to say? You don't owe. That's what the bank's going to say. You don't owe any money. It's paid. That's what your emphasis has to be. And I wouldn't move from that point until a person understood that. Because where are you going from there? If you don't believe one of the foundational tenets of the gospel that Christ died for our sins. Now, listen, this is not so crazy because, listen, I know what it feels like to be on that side. I was there. So I'm just telling you what the answer to it is. Yeah. I'm not, not going to give up on them. I'm going back and work with them. Yeah. Yeah. Make them, make them see the, the, the logic of what Christ did. Either he did it or he didn't. Now, you could say you don't believe that he did it. Well, that's another point. You could say you don't believe it, but if you believe it, well, this is what believing it means, okay? It means that you understand that Christ uh, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You understand that, right? <clears throat> I'll pause. Yeah, I, no, I'm with you, I'm with you. I, I just wanted to bring you the dilemma. And Bill, and Bill, you can also admit to them that um, in Corinthians chapter 5, 
counting people sitting against them. And in Revelation 20, sin not even mentioned. Only thing mentioned is works. It's right. not mentioned that exactly. sin in Revelation 20. You're right. Yeah, 20 and 12, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Now, of course, even though you have all the right scriptures, don't think that all of a sudden the person will believe. Remember, God the Holy Spirit is also working no. behind the scenes. right? And people rejected Jesus to his face. So to, let's just take some of the pressure off. right? Let's do your best to present what you understand, and that's all you can do. You can't make them believe. right? But the logic of it, I think, make it... it it definitely helps us <clears throat> get up on the edge of our seat and want to really contend with them because they're they're violating the very logic of the passage. So, yeah, yeah. Other thoughts out there? All right, all right. It's like we're quiet. <clears throat> all right, let's pray then. Let's pray as we're nearing. Thank you, Father. We uh, certainly do appreciate <clears throat> the position you have put us in, and that is in Christ. We thank you for those who have joined the study this evening and gave us their time so that we, we could come to know you better. We're thankful, Father, for this glorious gospel that is there are no loopholes or things that have been left out or <clears throat> things that we don't know about that you haven't already told us about the truth of the gospel. And we pray for wisdom that we may be able, may be able to apply those things that you have taught us so that to every person. Uh, just like it says in 1 Peter 3 that we might give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. So we thank you for this group. We thank you for this church and the questions that were on the table today were important and pertinent for us. And we pray that you will bring us back next week as we continue to learn how we can be successful as witnesses with those uh, with our boots on the ground in this age. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.